Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, they've got the guns, but their movie didn't have the numbers. This is War Dogs. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Blast Zone. Welcome to The Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I'm John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like War Dogs, which we'll be talking about today. But before we get into that, Ian, long time no see, friend. How how have you been? What have you been up to? I'm doing all right. You know, I'm on the hook for a walking update. Last time we podcasted, I promised the world that I would get back on the horse. And um, I have been walking since we last talked. Some days I walk inside in what I call apartment hiking, if you've heard of this trend. Are you making this up? This doesn't sound like a real trend. It's trendy in my unit. Um, Go from the bedroom, through the living room, through the kitchen and back. Are you on the ground floor or do you have downstairs neighbor? No, I'm on the ground floor. I I don't think I could do that to a downstairs neighbor. But 12 days in a row, I've closed the rings on the Apple Fitness app. Nice. So trying to keep it up. Hell yeah. Feels good. Proud of you, buddy. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm good. It's been, yeah, lots happened since the last time we talked. I was in Copenhagen for a week on business. You can't say things like, I was in Copenhagen on business without sounding like a fucking dickhead. Uh, or a pirate or something, or like a, like a tobacco a trader. A tobacco trader. <laughs> you go into Copenhagen to do business on a ship. You don't yeah. fly there to do business. I did get there on a steamship. Nice. Stowed away. No, I took a plane and it was a great trip. I had a lot of fun. I was with my coworkers. My whole company more or less showed up. It was the first time a lot of us met in person because we're a remote company. Uh-huh. So that was really cool but we still have found time to drink lots of beers, eat some cool food, explore the city. It's a very like adult city is how I would describe it. Okay. I think I saw maybe four children the entire week we were there. They just like don't exist in Denmark. Interesting. Everything's like a bar or a restaurant that does not seem to have a kid's menu. Like everything just seems catered to adults there. That's very interesting. One thing I do know about Denmark is they park the kids outside. Yes. The strollers go along the street on the curb and then you go inside and do your shopping or whatever. And just leave. pretty like, chill about that. Could not do that shit in America. America, your baby's no. getting stolen. Yeah. CPS is coming right after you. Their strollers are impressive, though. They're very sturdy looking. Okay. And, well, uh, enclosed. So I guess Denmark gets pretty cold. Uh, yeah. Thankfully for the kids who are being <laughs> left out on the street. Interesting uh, culture shock, though, seeing that. I just saw some lady pull her kid into one of the parking spots. She didn't chain it up or anything and just went into a store. For a parent, that must be an incredible sense of freedom. I wouldn't know. My kids are <laughs> attached to me everywhere I go. But yeah, that was a fun trip. And then I caught a cold while I was there and was recovering from that for a little while. We had to take an extra week off. But I assume you had time to watch lots of stuff in our long break. So why don't you tell me what's the thing you wanted to talk about the most? That is a movie called Sharper. It just came out February 2023. It's pretty brand new on Apple TV+. Plus. It's an Apple original, but it's produced by A24. So it has that A24 clout to it. Directed by a guy by the name of Benjamin Karen, a British director that I didn't know who he was, except then I read up and found out he directed three episodes of Andor. Oh. So that's like pretty good cred right there. Yeah. It's got a couple big name stars, Julianne Moore, Sebastian. Stan. Those are the names that you will know, but it's got two other actors in the center of it that I didn't know, Brianna Middleton and Justice Smith. Those two are really good and they really helped pull off this movie. So I didn't know what it was. Apple and the blurb calls it a neo-noir and after seeing it, I wouldn't exactly call it that, but it's this contemporary thriller and it's got a ton of twists in it. So the less I say about what I particularly think it is, the better. It wasn't the craftiest. It wasn't the thrillingest. It wasn't the most mind-blowing thriller. But it had enough of all that fun stuff to be entertaining and it was satisfying. And, and so I'm recommending it. It's worth checking out. I just want to say, put some respect on Justice Smith's name. He was the star of Detective Pikachu, oh. which is a big deal in my household. Okay, that um, is a big deal. He's good. I, like I legitimately that. do really enjoy the movie Detective Pikachu. But <laughs> he was also just in the, he was in the Jurassic World movie, starting with the second one, maybe. He's been in those. Good young actor. I think he's got a bright future. But I'm just looking at this cast and this little blurb on Wikipedia. And I think I'm going to need to take a look at this because it sounds yeah. like something. I would enjoy. John Lithgow is even in it. He has a small part. He's great as always. It's cool. Yeah. I think you were a good target audience for this. You'll like what it has to offer. Weird that it came and went without even me noticing. Usually I'm like on top of these things, but not this time. I think it did a week or 10 days in theaters, maybe. When I looked, it has a theatrical release date and then a streaming release right after. You went for a bit of a high-minded, conceptually rich film here. Sure. I also did. Oh. I saw another recent movie, the Gerard Butler thriller, Plane. Oh. Literally called Plane. 
Keep it simple. It was about a plane. Okay. Gerard Butler is a pilot. And I just want to say one of my favorite subgenres of movies is like Gerard Butler has a job that he would never realistically have <laughs> in real life, like pilot. Right. Or is he like an attorney in one movie? Just like, come on, Gerard Butler. You would be a bouncer or just Gerard Butler, the actor. Those are the yeah. two jobs I would believe you having. But it was like very much a throwback to trashy action movies of the 90s. Executive decision. Okay. But it feels like a similar one to that. The villains are poorly drawn caricature to some degree. They try to throw in like a little bit of pathos for them at some point. Really, it's about this guy who has like a checkered past, maybe, or some experience, but in over his head. And then Mike Alter pops up in it playing a convict who's being transported on the plane, but he gets- Oh, okay. So there's a Con Air twist? There's a Con Air twist to it for sure. <laughs> it takes itself a little more seriously than Con Air did, but sure. not too much. But so of course, Mike Alter gets free and then they team up to try to take down these rebels that are converging on their crashed airplane oh, and uh, okay. trying to like use them, take them hostage. I thought it was going to be more of like a crash land than an island and try to survive thing. But no, they crash land in the Philippines on an island in the Philippines, Jolo Island. Okay. There's a rebel group there that is trying to take these Americans hostage, use them for leverage, get some money, whatever. It's not important. It's just an excuse <laughs> for Mike Halter and Gerard Butler to shoot a bunch of people. Yeah. And uh, stage some increasingly ridiculous takeoffs and landings <laughs> that are just oh, okay. super fun to watch. They have no landing gear. They're just like slide on a runway for a while and hope for the best. Shit like that. Cool. So they do a lot of stuff with the titular plane. The plane is definitely a factor. And apparently it did well enough that there's going to be a sequel. And I'm not fucking kidding, called Ship. Oh. <laughs> and this is going to be the, the Mike Coulter spinoff. I don't know if Gerard Butler's going to be in it at all. Coulter's going to get his own movie called Ship. And that's fucking hilarious. Trash cinema at its finest. It's back, man. Like yeah. we need these movies to do well. And I'm really glad this one did because it's not good, but it's entertaining. There are much worse ways to spend your afternoon. Yeah. I wonder if we're going to say that about this week's movie. Uh, no. No, you know what? <laughs> I shouldn't be too hard on War Dogs. It's just a very strange movie. It's really hard to get a read on because what is it about? It's about fucking arms dealers, <laughs> but yeah. yet it's positioned as this semi-comedic romp with these two friends. It's a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I don't know if any of them are that great, but it gets you through somehow. It's extremely watchable. There's just something about this movie that like you you get sucked into it. And when you're done, like you don't feel like you ate your vegetables when this movie's over. You feel like you just ate like, yeah. Domino's pizza, but not just the pizza. Like you got the cheesy bread. Like it's just <laughs> trash. It's just garbage, but it fills you up. And yeah. you kind of regret it in the end. But then a few weeks later, you're like, oh man, you know what I could go for? Domino's. It's kind of like when I open a family size bag of potato chips and then I just keep going till the whole family has been fed. The family being just me. Yeah. <laughs> family of one. So yeah. Have you seen War Dogs before we started uh, researching for this episode? Do you remember when it came out? Or were you like a key grip? I was familiar with the imagery and the concept of Jonah Hill in a movie like this. I never saw it. So I really didn't know much about it. You sure you weren't confusing it for the Wolf of Wall Street? <laughs> Wolves, dogs, they're in the same family. What I did know going into this is that there's nothing in the rules that says, a dog can't sell guns. True. And then I watched a movie. There was no dogs in this movie at all. I don't think there's a single dog in this movie, which is a bummer. That would have been fun if there was like a mascot or something and like, that's the war dog. Right. Yeah. Say it to your date when you're in the movie theater. War dogs would have been a cool name for their little company as opposed to whatever the fuck they call it. Cause people yeah. call it many different acronyms. Uh, according to we me, we'll debate that. <laughs> I, 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 I don't think you agree with me, but I'm steadfast in this belief that different people in this movie say their name very differently. I just call themselves war dogs arms dealing. That's probably not what you call yourself in your, <laughs> like you might be an arms dealer, but nobody just names their company like Drake and Duke's arms dealers. Arms Incorporated. I'll tell you what, I'm dealing arms too. I'm talking about these biceps. <laughs> there you go. Do you want me to talk about the making of this movie? Let's get into it. Right? Is it raining by you? Can you hear the rain? Yeah. yeah. It's nice though. It's making me sleepy. It's splish splashing outside my window. So rare in LA. Yeah. You guys have been getting all kinds of fucking weather. But we're still podcasting. All right, here we go. In March 2011, journalist Guy Lawson published a story for Rolling Stone creatively titled The Stoner Arms Dealers, How Two American Kids Became Big-Time Weapons Traders. The article was a popular one, detailing how 21-year-old Ephraim Devroli and 25-year-old David Packhouse had gotten embroiled in the world of arms dealing in the mid to late aughts and eventually landed their company AEY, a $300 million contract providing the U.S. military with millions of rounds of ammo along with surface-to-air missiles, grenades, mortars, and more for the war 
in Afghanistan. War, what is it good for? A first job out of college, apparently. Trouble arose when they discovered a majority of the ammo they had secured, warehoused in Albania, was of Chinese origin. There was an embargo on weapons manufactured in China, and the contract also specifically outlawed Chinese ammo. So the boys did what any two good capitalists would. They repackaged the ammo to disguise the fact it was Chinese, and shipped it to Afghanistan anyway, effectively defrauding the U.S. government, which I can certainly get behind. Through a series of misadventures I won't get into here, the boys' deception was discovered and they were indicted on 71 counts of fraud. And the U.S. attorney was like, but who's counting? Both pled guilty. Pacquiao's got seven months of house arrest, and Devroli was sentenced to four years in prison. While this was going down, director Todd Phillips was busy cranking out the rarest of rarities, R-rated comedies that actually made money. As the director of hits like Road Trip, Old School, and The Hangover films, Phillips had plenty of clout in Hollywood, but he wanted to spread his wings and make some movies that weren't pure comedies. Or pure successes. He secured the rights to the AEY story and worked with Stephen Chin and Jason Smilovic on a screenplay adapting the story into a film. War Dogs was his first attempt at a crime thriller, clearly inspired by Scorsese capers like The Wolf of Wall Street, and he initially wanted to cast Jesse Eisenberg and Shia LaBeouf as the leads. That unlikely duo wouldn't pan out, though, and eventually Miles Teller and Jonah Hill were cast as Packhouse and Devoli, respectively. With a $50 million budget, filming began in March 2015 in various locations around Miami before moving on to Romania, Morocco, Las Vegas, and the greater Los Angeles area. Released on August 19, 2016, the film received mixed reviews, sitting at 61% on Rotten Tomatoes. Hill's performance was praised, but the film was criticized for failing to hold Pacquiao's accountable for his actions and also letting the U.S. government off a little too easy. The movie would open in third place with $14.6 million, behind Suicide Squad in its third week, and Sausage Party, another Hill movie, in its second week. Imagine that, getting porked by your own sausage. It would drop 52% all the way to 7th place in week 2, despite the only serious new releases being home invasion thriller Don't Breathe and another Jason Statham mechanic movie. It would eventually limp out of theaters with $86 million in worldwide gross, less than it needed to turn a profit, but Phillips would hit it big with another Scorsese impression. His gritty Joker movie would make over a billion dollars in 2019, with a sequel on the way in 2024. Okay, I just learned that fact. I thought the Joker movie was a joke that everybody thought was dumb and made fun of on Twitter, and I didn't know it made a billion dollars. Made a billion fucking dollars, man. It was a big deal. It's also neither as good as the people that love it say it is, or as bad as the people that hate it say it is. Yeah. It's got a really good performance from Joaquin Phoenix in the lead, obviously, which is to be expected at this point. Yeah, he's a nut, but you love him. Of course. But it's also just a weird Gotham City taxi driver redux to some degree. (laughs) Yeah. It's got its redeeming quality. I don't think it's an abomination, but it's also not a masterpiece. No, but I mean, it's aside from War Dogs, Todd Phillips has got this U-shaped career that's pretty damn successful. Because how do you top like the road trips and then- um, You mean the hangovers? The hangovers and old school and then Joker just crushing it at the box office. And this thing makes it seem mostly like an anomaly in his career. It does feel like an outlier. Like him or hate him, Todd Phillips seems to find ways to connect with audiences the vast majority of the time. And I say like him or hate him because he seems like a fucking dick if you read interviews with him. Yeah, I got like the secondhand <laughs> version of that because everybody was like, oh, what is Todd Phillips claiming about the Joker? And that was what really turned people off to the Joker, I think. The combination of yeah. the actual content of the movie plus his attitude presenting it to the public. He also made some comments about like why he left comedy because you can't make jokes these days. People are so sensitive, oh, right. which is one of my fucking least favorite <laughs> refrains from like wildly successful white guys. That is a red flag statement right there. It feels like a dog whistle at this point to some degree. Right. We all know what you mean. Yes. I have some bad opinions that I would like to say, but someone is preventing me. So I don't want to necessarily go have a beer with him, but he sure knows his way around a Scorsese movie. This came out four years after The Wolf of Wall Street, and there is a lot of influence here. The needle drops, the kind of smash cuts, the voiceover. There's a lot of Scorsese influence happening here. I've only seen Wolf of Wall Street once, but of course I was a huge Goodfellas guy back in the day, so I recognize all those same things. It's because you are a Goodfella. As long as I can remember, I always wanted to be a Scorsese. Scorsese fan. And so I recognize all the same elements, which are absolutely there in that movie too, right? Starting with the flash forward, doing a lot of voiceover to sort of get you on the side of the main character, doing all the freeze frames. It's all in this movie. And like overall, if you're going to say, hey, there's a director that I love and I'm going to try to do all the stuff I saw him doing, Martin Scorsese, that's a pretty good guy to pick. Yeah. You can't totally blame him except to the extent you think he's doing a hacky job of it. And the reason I keep going back to The Wolf of Wall Street versus other Scorsese movies is because 
because when I say Scorsese movies, I'm really talking about like the crime thrillers, which are not the majority of his filmography, no matter what his detractors try to tell you. But they're the probably his most commercially successful movies and the ones most people know him for. Yeah. And they all tend to focus around, if not the mafia, just like violent guys who are killing people at some point. Yeah. And The Wolf of Wall Street's the only one that feels similar to this in the sense that these guys aren't gangsters. They're breaking the law to make money. They're white collar criminals to some degree. Yes. And that's the only Scorsese movie that kind of has that relationship to crime that I can think of. And just the hill of it all, the Jonah Hill being in both movies, playing sure. not the same character, but certainly not two dissimilar characters. I think he's a fine actor, but he's a guy who brings a lot of his personality and his style to a role. So like you kind of always seeing Jonah Hill when you see a Jonah Hill character. And in, in both, he plays the live wire, the wild card, the guy who's mm-hmm. going to make some poor choices, say the wrong thing, rile people up, and then you have a mess to clean up. Here, he's basically playing a fucking sociopath. Yeah. And to, to that extent, that's one of the stronger parts of the movie. And we'll get to what we think of the various actors' performances in it. I think the movie stumbles in communicating who he is and what's our journey supposed to be with understanding Ephraim as a character throughout. But once you figure it out, you go, oh yeah, that's really who that guy was. And uh, yeah, Jonah Hill made it fly to the extent it does fly. Should we get into the story of the movie? Yeah. My dogs are barking, as they say. I don't know. That's not how you usually start a thing like this. I no. said that because I was looking for a hard play. Let me just jump right in. David Pacow is played by Miles Teller, hates his job as a massage therapist. He tries to launch a small business, but it fails miserably. Then he runs into Ephraim Diveroli, played by Jonah Hill, his old best friend from junior high school. David and Ephraim rekindle their friendship, and Ephraim reveals he's running a successful business selling guns to the U.S. government, taking advantage of overlooked opportunities on the Pentagon's publicly available procurement website. One day, David's girlfriend, Iz, played by Ana de Armas, tells him that she's pregnant. And after hearing this, Ephraim offers to hire David at his company, AEY, which is making big money off the Iraq War. David takes the job, and he excels at it, and the money starts rolling in. But trouble is brewing. David knows that Iz is strongly anti-war and wouldn't approve of his new job. So David lies to her, and he hides what he's really doing for a living. Dirty motherfucker. Weirdly, I kind of already told everyone the plot of the movie, because I told everyone the plot of the magazine article. <laughs> of the and, real thing, yeah. In the monologue, and it, the movie certainly takes some liberties with the real story, but it's more or less following that basic premise. And that's the movie's value proposition. This part of the movie, especially in this part where it ramps up and it does all this voiceover stuff to tell you about the real-life aspects of the story, that's the meat of it. That's the good stuff, right? It's fun to learn learn about a real-life get-rich-quick scheme that this one guy knew about and this other sort of more innocent character falls into. So he becomes our surrogate. And you're like, oh, what if your friend just hired you for this crazy thing that seemed not that hard and you could start making millions? That's enjoyable. And they present it pretty well. It almost feels like the embellishments that are added to the movie. It's like Phillips and the screenwriters didn't trust the true story to be interesting enough to stand on its own. So they kind of had to add all these more Hollywood-type elements to it. But I feel like it ends up taking away from the movie. It does feel obligatory and it doesn't add that much. What's interesting is when you bring that up, besides Scorsese as an obvious comparison for this movie, I was getting a lot of Adam McKay vibes, right? Mm -hmm. Because this movie is very specifically about teaching us some of the sins of the Bush-Cheney era and this war profiteering that was directly connected to that point in history. And obviously that's Adam McKay's hobby horse. And so then on my comparing it, you talk about what about the, the human parts versus the technical explaining the real life stuff. There was certainly a ton of that, like in the big short, but then there was some wacky ass characters that you were like, holy fuck, he didn't kind of shortchange you on the character part. Whereas maybe these guys are a little cheaper cutouts. Yeah, that was a good, a good comparison. I do see the McKay comparison now that you bring it up. Should we talk Um, about Miles Teller? Yeah, I guess it's tell about Teller. Tell us. Miles Teller, he's a guy, got a face (laughs) and some hair. He's never been magnetic to me as an actor. He doesn't draw me to movies or roles. Like I'm not, Yeah. he's certainly serviceable, but I see him more as like an overqualified character director than a leading man. So having him kind of anchor this movie and it's, it's not just his performance, like the character is dead eyed and aimless and lazy. Even when he's like successful in making money, he doesn't really have like much of a point of view outside of like, gee, I sure like this money. I'd like to keep making it. And that's the guy we follow through the movie. I don't really understand why we're supposed to be interested in what he has to say. Yeah. He's basic for lack of a better word. Like he's just a dude and he's has some basic motivations and he has a 
pretty girlfriend. And he- Hold on. Ana de Armas <laughs> in War Dogs is not pretty. Might be <laughs> the best looking woman ever captured on film. In <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm with you on that. In fact, my <laughs> argument for her in this movie is that she's too beautiful. It actually doesn't work. The character 100%. falls apart because yeah. she's too gorgeous on screen. And the way Todd Phillips shoots her, I think you would agree that like he's using her as a prop to make this movie more Hollywood and give it more appeal. He doesn't shoot her as this sort of ordinary woman girlfriend of this weird massage therapist. He puts her on screen and lights up her gigantic hazel eyes. And you're just, you forget what movie you're watching when her face fills the screen because she's too pretty. So it's weird. I think she's also a really good actress. And I like the scenes where she gets to do some acting in this movie, but it's a mismatch. Something's off there. It's also a completely made up character. The character of his did not exist in the true story. So she is not a character. She's just a beautiful obstacle for our heroes to keep making money. Our heroes was very firmly in air quotes, but all she is, is someone to get around so you can keep making all your millions. You got to get one over on her or you're going to have to stop selling guns. Yeah. Or to make him feel guilty in this very sitcom kind of way. Like I kept coming back to a sitcom analogy to the David Packhouse character. He's this kind of simplistic young guy. He has these simplistic once and he's, oh, I hate my dumb job. I wish I could make more money and smoke. I want to sell sheets. And then he starts lying to his girlfriend, his impossibly beautiful girlfriend for no good reason. Just like the way that sitcom dopey young heroes have to do because they don't know any better. And so he lies in ways that become more and more ridiculous as the movie goes on. You're like, why are you keeping up this life? Can't you ever have a real conversation with your girlfriend who you're having a child with? But no, he's not that kind of character. Yeah. Like you you sat her down. It's like, look, I know this is not a war you agree with, but people are going to get their guns from somebody. And this is a way for us to make real money and set up a life for ourselves. She comes across as pretty reasonable. Yeah. Even after he, even after she finds out about it, she's eventually like, okay, I get it. You know? So like you could have fucking bypassed all that. She's too reasonable in the end. It undercuts anything that they set up. We'll get around to when that comes full circle. But yeah, she doesn't get to be a real character because he doesn't engage with her beyond that sitcom level of keeping a secret. And uh oh, what if they find out by the end of the episode, it's all going to come crashing down. I'm skipping ahead to the middle section of the movie, but when they're like successful arms dealers living in this fucking golden and glass and marble high rise in Miami and he still feels the need to like hide bricks of cash in the guest bathroom. It's like, she knows you're rich, you fucking dipshit. Like she lives in the same house you do. <laughs> do you totally think she's unexplained. shocked that you have money? That was again, it was another stunt. He comes home with his money strapped to his chest for no reason. There's definitely some things in there that are just He drives like, a fucking Porsche. What are you hiding your money for? They didn't bother to explain that no. at all. Like he flew home with a duffel bag full of cash in his hand. And yet he's like, well, I had to strap six more stacks to my chest just to make it feel more illicit and to set me up for trouble with my wife. Speaking of David Packhouse, the real David Packhouse does have a cameo in this section of the movie. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention it. He is the acoustic guitar player at the old folks home. Yeah. Playing, comedically playing Don't Fear the Reaper while Miles Teller is trying to sell bedsheets to, is that actor's name Eddie Jameson? He's very familiar. He's been in other movies in the last song before. He has, yeah. Eddie Jameson, best known for the Oceans movies, I think. He somehow- oh, right. Yes. He's, he's, I'm going to be honest. He's not a very good actor, uh, in my opinion, but he's got the Oceans movie, so he's probably set for life. That's how most people know him. I know him as Stan Perkins from Justified, and that's our Justified crossover of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Justified crossover of the week. Oh, shit. Unsurprisingly, the Northman did not have one. (laughs) War Dog certainly does. All right. So let's talk about, we talked about Teller a little bit. Neither of us are really sold on him. We talked about Hill a little bit. Was there anything else about his performance in this section that you wanted to highlight? So he starts out as just like a dopey friend who shows up at this funeral. And then he immediately leads David on this wild caper that kind of establishes the outer boundaries of just how wacky this character can be. Were you endeared to him after that scene? I wouldn't say endeared, but I was interested. I was like, oh, this is like a crazy person. Like I want to spend more time with him and see what kind of shenanigans he gets up to. So just to set the table a little bit. He goes to buy some weed from a regular guy he buys from. He's not uh-huh. home. There is a group of gentlemen sitting outside this courtyard who say, I'll sell you weed instead. $300 for, what do they say, an ounce? I don't remember. It doesn't matter. See something like that. And once he gives them the money, they're like, I don't have any weed. I don't know what you're talking about. Get out of here. Get fuck out of here. They show him a gun to persuade him to leave more quickly. He goes into his trunk and pulls out a fucking assault rifle and just starts shooting it in the air in the middle of a crowded Miami street and then just gets back in the car and drives away and explains it by saying, don't worry, bro. I have a class three firearms license. It doesn't give you permission to shoot it off in the street, you fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah, like, what does class four get you? <laughs> Just like, you can shoot a bazooka at whoever you want. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Class three does a lot of work. 
work on that line, but it's fun. It's high energy. Jonah Hill is good at doing high energy, crazy shit like that. And it's funny because I think I should have learned that the character is kind of despicable at that point by just the way he casually threatens incredible amounts of deadly violence. And yet you kind of won over and you're like, oh, I think based on the way the role he's playing in this movie, that this character is going to be redeemable by the end. And then the movie kind of throws you for a little loop. And by the end, it's like, actually, no, he was a piece of shit. I felt the same way. And I wonder if part of the reason we like him in that moment is the contrast with Teller as Packhouse, who is just so passive and meek about everything. You're kind of like, oh, finally, like somebody with some fucking personality is in this movie to liven it up and, I don't know, move the plot along (laughs) because otherwise there's nothing happening. That's a good point. There is a good contrast there. There's a lot of the elements that would make this movie and these characters and their relationship really compelling. And they just end up being sort of surface level compelling by the end. My final note about this section is the AUI versus AUI debate, which I know you don't agree with me. I hear Teller at a minimum calling it AUI every fucking time he says the company name. And then when we finally see like a letterhead, it's AEY. Yeah. AEY, not AUI. Hey, you guys. Hey, you guys. What's up with the company next? So I saw that you wrote down that note. We didn't talk about it. You're like, why do they keep calling it AUI? I'm like, they don't do that, do they? And then once I had that name in my mind and I watched the movie a second time, I'm like, oh, John's right. They're calling it that. But it was the same thing that I heard the first time is AEY. And I'm like, hold on. This is a blue dress, gold dress situation. Depending on what you're holding in your mind, when you hear them say it, it could go either way. Or what was, there was an auditory equivalent, right? Wasn't there the Yanni or? There's a bunch of those words. Yeah. Where you can hear totally different words. These words are, it's clear why they're similar. But yeah, if you think of AY, AY, what am I saying right now? Now, AY, AY. A-U-Y, the first time, A-E-Y the second time. Did I get it? I don't know. I thought I was saying them both A-E-Y. Oh, fuck. We should take some audience opinion on this one. What do you hear? Yeah, chime in on Twitter. Let us know if you guys are hearing A-U-Y or A-E-Y, if you watch this movie. Not that many people have. (laughs) Or if you just hear us say it. What do you hear when we say it? A-U-Y. A-U-Y. Now I'm going Stallone. All right. You ready to jump into the middle of the movie? Yeah, let's hear what happens next. Ephraim and David land a massive new contract to deliver Beretta pistols to the U.S. Army in Baghdad, but an arms embargo forces their shipment to divert to Jordan, and the Army captain in charge threatens to cancel the contract if they can't deliver. To make things worse, Iz overhears the guys talking about delivering guns, forcing David to admit he lied to her about what he was working on. To save the deal and their company's reputation, Ephraim and David fly to Jordan, then hire a local smuggler to drive them and their guns to Baghdad. On the drive, the guys are chased and shot at by militiamen, and when they finally get to Baghdad and deliver on their deal, the captain is impressed that they braved the Triangle of Death kind of the punchline of this whole sequence. We got to save the deal. We got to go to Jordan. How are we going to get these guns? And then they're like celebrating at the end. And the guy goes, can't believe you went through the triangle of death. And they like look at each other. It is a real place though. Yeah. Some part of Iraq where the worst militia infighting was taking place at this time. And so everybody was shooting at everybody else in that zone, including these two guys who apparently fictionally drove through the triangle of death. This was not in your talk about the real life making of the movie because it didn't happen in real life. It didn't. In fact, the Beretta contract did happen, but they just lost the contract. Oh, okay. (laughs) So they lost a lot of contracts, apparently. The movie does not really address that, but real life Packhouse and Devroli were almost blacklisted from doing any business with the military because they had fucked up a few contracts in the past. Okay. That might have been an interesting thing to kind of address in the movie, but I think they wanted them to seem competent to some degree. I can see how this is the Hollywood version of that. Instead of like a bunch of small failures leading to a breakdown, it's one big failure and the captain is like, if I don't have these guns on my desk Monday morning, I'm going to terminate you for cause. And they're like, no, that'll kick us out of the whole system. Our business will be finished. So like it works as a Hollywood thing. And it's kind of some of the more high spirited, funny, fun parts of this movie. There's some question about whether this movie is a comedy. Do you see it as a comedy or some mix? I see it as it's at least half a comedy. I see it as a crime comedy. Certainly not a thriller, even though there are some thrilling parts of this section in particular and some stuff in the third act as well. But a crime comedy is how I would describe it. Similar to Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Wolf of Wall Street, I just felt I was on edge during that movie, which I think is the intention. This movie, I wasn't on edge, but yet also the jokes are kind of mild. So it's also, it's not that, it's not that comedic. I think the Wolf of Wall Street is 
funnier than this movie, but also Probably. more tense and more, yeah. more upsetting in a way. But it's also a very long movie covering decades, whereas this is telling a more contained story. Yeah. And in this section, in this drive from Jordan to Baghdad, we get the one joke that actually I got a good laugh at. There's this character. His name's Marlboro. I believe um, it's Marlboro. Yeah. Like Marlboro, the, the, the smuggler. He takes him in and they're like, is it dangerous doing this drive? He's like, no, it's pretty good. 50-50. And there's like a whole comedy sequence of like, he doesn't speak English that well. He doesn't know what that means. Can't be really 50-50 that we're going to survive it. But come to find out, he did know what he was talking about. Kind of it was 50-50. Right. He uh, was blasé but- about it. He was a little too chill. It was one of those moments where the tension in the scene has to do with the fact that there's two truckloads full of militiamen barreling down the highway towards them, firing AKs in the air, and this guy's lazily filling a gas can and schlepping his way back to the truck. Yeah, he's and got no like- peripheral vision or he can't hear. <laughs> it's like they have to tell him, Marlboro, let's go because we don't want to be shot. And he's like, what? So anyway, this is one of those trumped up bits of excitement and like, doesn't quite hold water in the way the real world works, but it was fun. And then the army helicopter flies over their head and takes out their enemies before they can kill them. I pinched myself when I heard Fortunate Son <laughs> playing while a military helicopter flew overhead. I was like, can we just fucking retire this song from any <laughs> scene involving the U.S. military forever? Give me a fucking break. So let's talk about the needle drops in this movie. Yeah. They're not great, right? Like, I'm no. not really a fan of the music choices at all. They're not great. We mentioned David Packhouse himself doing a cameo singing Don't Fear the Reaper, that's kind of the best one because it's got something original to it. That's really him. It has an extra layer of something going on there. But just even to think that there's like this funny young man singing Don't Fear the Reaper to these old people and his version is good enough that you're like, okay, that was a creative use of an old classic rock song in a movie and Fortunate Son was not creative. There's lots of uncreative choices in this <laughs> with the soundtrack to this movie. But my pick for the cringiest one is at the end, it's all over. They're getting wrapped up by the FBI and it's Behind Blue Eyes by The Who, which is, it's just like trying to scrape up this false sense of pathos for these guys at that point. I don't even know like why you picked that song there, just for like what was on the classic rock station. To use a term you used earlier talking about Packhouse as a character, they're kind of basic needle drops. Like they feel like just put that in and we'll pick a different song in post-production, but we just need something. And then they just forgot to do the second part. That's one thing where you could point out Todd Phillips being too facile a score. Scorsese imitator is like when Scorsese picks classic rock songs that the man grew up in that era. Like those were the music of his youth. So like he has some legitimacy dropping them into his movies. And then when a guy imitating him who was born 20 plus years later drops the same songs into his movie, it's like, dude, you were supposed to think of your own songs. Also, can I, the sunshine of your love, Needle Drop and Goodfellas is my pick for my favorite a Scorsese one. Nice. Yeah. That one will always get me fucking going. Mine is, I think, Monkey Man by the Stones. That's a song that I just absolutely love and I think I learned about it from that movie. Ooh, look at that learning thing. All right. Is that it for Act 2? Yeah. Weirdly, that's all we have for Act 2. Act 2 is kind of that one sequence, at least the way that we diagram the movie. So now we'll move on back to more real life stuff. Maybe you'll tell me when we get to the end of this, what was real. Here we go. Things are looking good. AEY is growing and David and Iz welcome a baby daughter. Then the guys go after and land the so-called Afghan deal, a contract of truly life-changing proportions. To fulfill the deal, they have to partner with a notorious arms dealer named Henry. Henry Gerard, played by Bradley Cooper, who helps them source 100 million AK-47 bullets from Albania. In the midst of all this business, Iz gets fed up with David's continued lying and moves out. Then the deal gets sketchy when the guys find out the Albanian bullets are really Chinese, and they're forced to repackage them to deceive the U.S. government. Meanwhile, Ephraim is busy being a terrible partner. He makes David go to Albania to do all the hard work, and then he tries to screw Henry Gerard out of his money, which causes Henry to kidnap and beat David and threaten him at gunpoint. So David comes home, and he quits AEY, but Ephraim won't pay David the money he owes him from the big deal. Anyway, sometime later, David is reunited with his, and he's back to working as a masseuse when the FBI shows up and arrests him and Ephraim for fraud and conspiracy. The good news is that David gets off pretty easy for testifying against his no good partner Ephraim and then to top it off Henry Gerard shows up to thank David for not ratting him out and offering David a briefcase full of cash. Love to get a briefcase full of cash. Yeah, from Bradley Cooper, no less. Sure. Yeah, why not? What'd you think of Cooper in this role? 
He only pops up in a few scenes, but they're pretty important. He's fun. He's definitely one of the fun parts of the movie. He's good as a scary guy. You know, he has some kind of leading man qualities, but overall, he's a person with a lot of darkness in him. I've heard other people comment on that. Um, You mean like in his personal life? Just as a human being, he's good at evoking those darker feelings than like- I mean, he was great at that in A Star is Born, I thought. Absolutely. Yeah. That, That movie starts out with some romantic lead, warm, fuzzy stuff and goes as dark as you can possibly get. But yeah, yeah, he's just a spooky dark force in this movie. And uh, he's doing the Bradley Cooper thing. He's such an actor's actor. You got to wonder if he picked out those bug eye glasses that he wears because his character has these funny bug eyes because he wears these big glasses. These like yellow tinted aviators. Yeah, they're very strange. I would bet he had a say in those glasses. But he's he's a Phillips guy too. That's true. I think he might have even been like a producer on Joker. It seems like they have they have a good working relationship. Okay. Yeah, but it's still strange to me see him playing a menacing guy because most of us met him as a villain in Wedding Crashers. Right. Just playing like an absolute douchebag. He's a villain, but he's not a menace. He's not scary. And then like he stuck with that personality type for most of his big roles for a long time. The character Phil in The Hangover is more or less what his character in Wedding Crashers would be if he just like settled down and became a teacher. So I don't know. I, I still have a hard time divorcing that image in my head. So when he's on screen, I'm just expecting him to be like a silly little dick. He's pretty scary at times in this movie. It was kind of impressive. He is really a good actor. And yeah, he does get into that role. I do think actors love having their bits of business and their props. And so that the difference is that his eyes bug out because of these funny lenses. And you're like, oh, that's not Bradley Cooper. That's some scary ass arms dealer, dude. I'm not sure if he's made up for the movie either. I'm not sure if he's a real guy or not. Oh, um, yeah. I think research. I did read there's there is somebody there's some parallel to him. It may not have been um, okay. involved in this deal in this way, but there is some real life arms dealer that they used at least as some kind of pattern for this character. Every fucking arms dealer movie has that guy, the boogeyman, the big arms dealer that you don't fuck around with. That's he comes in and either undercuts you on a big job or you have to work with him, but you're a little scared of him. And for good reason, we talk about how the movie doesn't really reckon with the morality of what its main characters do, but it throws a lot of questions at you. It just doesn't spend time trying to make you answer them. Like we said, this movie ends with him offering David a briefcase full of cash, and we don't know if David took it. We hope he did for the sake of his wife. She deserves to live a good life. Also, he's a lying scumbag who just loves money. So I'm fairly certain he took the briefcase. He's kind of a shit. Like we're supposed to feel bad for his financial situation because he's a massage therapist. He's still living in like an $8 million penthouse on South Beach. Yeah, that's like paid for, right? From the Beretta deal. Yeah, I'm assuming he just bought it in cash. Doesn't have a mortgage. I'm sure the HOA fees there are fucking phenomenal. (laughs) True. He does does need a real source of income to keep up that property. But while we were talking about the Henry Girard character, one of the likable people in this movie is their friend, their Albanian fixer guy who drives him around. Bash Kim. Do we have his name in here somewhere? Something with a Kim. Bash Bash Kim sounds right, but let me find out. Oh, yes. It is Bash Kim. Bash Kim. Yeah. Super delightful guy. Another fun- What a sweetheart. Fun side character. He offers them the Albanian McDonald's. There's a lot of warm, fuzzy, funny lines. And that guy turns up dead. And then you're like, you find out if you can connect the slightly fuzzy parts of the plot that Henry Girard had him killed because he's the one who conveyed to Ephraim Henry Girard's actual cost of the bullets. And that's what made Ephraim try to screw Henry out of the deal. I didn't put that together on my first watch. I just knew that something fishy went on. But yeah, it's Bash Kim's brother that works in the whatever department that gave the information about what Henry Girard's real bullet cost was. So if you follow the plot line, it truly was Henry, the Bradley Cooper character that fucking offed this very likable character that we all liked. I did put that together, but I did not realize that it was Bashkim's brother that actually spilled the beans on the deal. Exactly. Which actually makes Bashkim getting killed make a lot more sense and not just like a weird revenge thing. It wasn't just a random revenge. Yeah. I mean, what's brought around because David's asking Henry what happened to Bashkim and Henry's like, no more questions, take this cash. So like, that's kind of his admission that it was him. Yeah. What'd you think about the time in Albania. I kind of like those scenes. It was more high-spirited fun and the fact that you did feel like, okay, this ties into something real. This is an illustration of what happens if you really find out that you can buy 100 million bullets from Albania. What does that look like? Who are the funky old generals that show you into the warehouse? And they show you all that stuff and it's fun. Also, like we said it with Bashkin, but like the people there seem pretty warm and friendly, which was a nice contrast to the sad gray settings. And I think somebody's first instinct when filming scenes in a place that looks like that might be to make everyone seem depressed and dour and just shitty. But That's true. Phillips, to his credit, actually makes the people there pretty welcoming and nice, which it felt good for a little while to be around yeah. some like humans. No, we do have to give Phillips credit for that. I totally agree with you. Those are good filmmaking choices to make the Albanian people. And there's a couple important characters to make them more human, to make them the more box interesting. Man. Yeah, yeah, the box man. Yeah, the box man. real pivotal character. He drops a dime on them and gets them arrested. But like he's the whole time, he's like, I don't want to do 
do this, you guys. I'm trying to just do a little box deal here. Why are you fucking me? And it's insult to injury because when he initially gives them his quote of $100,000 to repackage all the bullets, they're like laughing it up at how cheap it is, but you still won't fucking pay. He, all he wanted was 100000 That was like nothing to them. And it drives home the point just how sick Ephraim is by the end when you realize he's not satisfied until he has every single dollar, even though he had more than enough profits to live handsomely off what he was making. Yeah, so let's run down everything Ephraim does in this section that is <laughs> fucking terrible because he veers into supervillain territory in the third act of this movie. <laughs> yes, he does. First, he refuses to pay the box man, yep. which is ultimately what gets them arrested. Dick mode um, and bad for business. He tries to go around Gerard, which is what gets Baksham killed yeah. and almost gets David killed. Yeah, and pretty, pretty threatening. He gets a gun pointed at his head. And then we didn't mention this in the synopsis, but they had a handshake agreement for, what was it, 70-30 split yes. on profits for the company. Right. And David just wanted to get that on paper. He wrote up a contract. He signs it. Ephraim signs it right before David leaves for Albania. They sign this contract. David, like a fucking idiot, though, doesn't give it to a lawyer right away. He just leaves no. it in his desk drawer. And of course, by the time he gets back, that contract is nowhere to be found because Ephraim has destroyed it. Yeah. He tells him, go fuck yourself. I'm not paying you a dollar. Which doesn't even make sense. Like, it, it really is a supervillain turn. Like, I thought he at least had some good times hanging out with David. Why would he want to just cut him out so hard that he just ended the relationship? I guess he was offended because David quit because he didn't like being beat up and threatened with guns. He was offended the minute David put a contract um, That's true. on his desk. You could see, they don't really draw too much attention to it, but you could see like the look on his face of, oh. when he brings it up is pretty telling that he's kind of drawn a line in the sand by then, I think. And maybe if everything else went smoothly, he might have just signed the contract and, and honored it, but I doubt it. I think he was always going <laughs> to no. find a way to weasel out of it. And in his most evil supervillain move, he's not even going to pay for breakfast. He fucking offers, he offers David this shitty ass pennies on the dollar severance package. And he's like, yeah. fuck you, $200,000? I was going to get $10 million out of this. And he's like, well, fuck you. Now I'm not even going to pay for breakfast. It's like, whoa. You have a note here that we should have known Ephraim was a real dipshit because of how he talks to women. One in particular, it's maybe the first third of the movie. Yeah. They're in a nightclub and he says some pretty gross things to a young woman who walks by. And I'm so bummed that the guy that beats him up is Dan Bilzerian. It's like douche on douche violence there. Yeah. That's a victimless crime. But can we just leave Dan Bilzerian in like 2011 or whenever the fuck the last time he was culturally relevant was? Because we don't need him around. I had to, I read up on him before we came on air just so I would know what the reference was. And yeah, he's just sort of a self-promoting trust fund kid who just did a lot of unpleasant things. So I don't want to give him any more time than he's due, but you're right. We just gave Todd Phillips credit and now we got to take yes. points away for casting Bilzerian. He was past his expiration date by a couple years at this point. So that, that's everything I have for the movie itself. Was there anything else we missed? Well, we were in this business of giving Todd Phillips points and taking him away. I had written down that there was one point that I wanted to give him back. Okay. As much as this supervillain heel turn caught us off guard, they do some actual setup and payoff. Because in the first act, I think it's David that tells us Efren's genius is to figure out who someone wants him to be and become that person. And then in the final big blow up when they're in the elevator and the FBI is about to get him, he makes a realization, oh, he was doing that to me. I wanted him to be my friend from junior high and he was acting that role until it was inconvenient for him. And so you got to give him credit. Okay. They set something up. They paid it off in a big way. But for some reason, despite all these clues we're talking about, it doesn't feel quite natural in the movie. It still feels like it catches you in a way that you're like, oh, was I supposed to know something? Was I supposed to get it? I don't know. Yeah. I don't think Phillips is like a incompetent filmmaker. I think he understands things like setup and payoff and for foreshadowing, things like that. But yeah, I think he maybe abandoned that thread for too much of the movie to make the payoff feel really organic. You know, yeah. like we get it in the early parts. We see how he interacts with whatever Kevin Pollock's character's name is, Ralph, I think. Yeah. And you know how he puts a yarmulke on when he goes to talk to him and is you know exactly. like a very devout young Jewish man when he's talking to him. And But then the movie just forgets to keep that thread for a big chunk of it. So by the time it comes back around at the end, you're like, oh yeah, I guess that's a thing they talked about, <laughs> but it doesn't feel like a revelation. Yeah. I wonder if the Baghdad sequence in that way actually works as a distraction because it's kind of a buddy comedy for that sequence. Yeah. And you forget that this whole other plot is brewing and maybe that kind of undoes the setup work. It honestly, it also undermines Ephraim's character in the sense that I don't see him putting himself in danger to that degree. He'd send David or somebody else. He's not going to be the one in that truck driving through the triangle of death. It doesn't feel true to his character. That's a good point. It would have felt more real if David would have showed up the morning of the truck departure and been like, where's Ephraim? And he 
was on a plane to right. Paris by that time. That would have rang true to me. So that section felt like, to be honest, they were padding for time to some degree. And also they wanted to inject some Hollywood action into the movie. Exactly. Without really earning it. And like you said, it undercuts certain other things the movie was trying to do by just being so out of character. But that was apparently based on something that Stephen Chin had happened to him. He was sneaking into Baghdad to secure the life rights to two guys who had started like a pirate radio station in Baghdad. Okay. And he wanted to interview them and get the rights to either write a story or a movie about this whole enterprise. So he had to get himself into Baghdad, which it's not super easy to do. So he flew to Jordan, hired a smuggler and got driven into Baghdad that way through the triangle of death. I don't know if he was actually chased by militiamen, but he certainly had to do the rest of it. So he just retrofitted that story to make sense in this context. That's fun. I almost feel bad for him that he wasted his incredible true life story tidbit on this movie. Like that didn't right? Really I, would, I would watch a movie. Deserve. Yeah, I would watch the movie about him trying to write the movie about this radio station. Yeah, like that you could see could be like a serious sort of even an Oscar movie version of that took it real seriously. But instead, yeah. it's like a, it's a slapstick version scene in the middle of this middling movie. So I already told you what Phillips had done before this and what he'll be up to. The only movie he has on his docket is the Joker sequel starring okay. Joaquin Phoenix and Lady Gaga. Oh, right. I saw a photo from that. So let's talk about some of the actors involved and see where they went after this. So Teller, he was on a bit of a cold streak here in his career. The movies he had right before this were Fantastic Four. Stay tuned for that one. Okay. Allegiant, which was the final movie in the Divergent series and okay. Bond hard enough to kill that entire franchise. It was not supposed to be the final movie, let's say. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, they just abandoned the rest of it. And Get a Job, which was shot in 2012 and shelved until 2015 when it got a video on demand release. That's three less than stellar movies in a row, two of which had huge budgets and a lot of marketing behind them. And then he followed War Dogs up with another bomb, Bleed for This, which was a boxing movie, but he got pretty good reviews for it. So people seemed to like him as an actor in that one. I've never seen it. He'd follow that up immediately with another critical hit, but box office bomb with the firefighter drama, Only the Brave. Okay. So he'd then go on to make Too Old to Die Young, which is a TV show that Nicholas Winding Refn, the director of movies like Drive and Only God Forgives, he made it for Amazon. And it came out and it was almost immediately buried. Amazon makes you type out like almost the entire name of the show before it will like auto suggest it for you. You can't find, if you scroll through like Amazon originals, you will never see it. You have to search for it specifically. It is a super strange, super fucked up, at times incredibly boring, incredibly violent, neo-noir. I don't even know how to describe the show. I never finished it. I watched maybe three episodes, some of the worst television I've ever seen. Some really good scenes in it. And like, it's well acted and well directed. Like Nicholas Winding Refn is a talented director, but he's got his head up his fucking ass to a degree I don't think any modern filmmaker does. And this show is just like the perfect encapsulation of that because I'm sure Amazon gave him just a pile of money and was like, go do whatever you want with it. And boy, did he. I had (laughs) forgotten about that. I was like, oh, this is another thing I haven't seen. I did watch at least part of this pilot and I I remember losing interest pretty quickly, but I can picture Miles Teller in a cop car with rain and city lights around him. Yep. A lot of neon. Um, Yeah. A lot of neon. (laughs) I must have lost interest pretty quick because I know I didn't get far. I kind of want to go back and finish it because I hear like the last three episodes are just insane. Oh, okay. And not necessarily in a good way to be clear. But yeah, I I don't know what to make of that show. But Teller was in it and he's in the middle of a cold streak. So that show certainly didn't help because nobody saw it. And most of the people who did hated it. Chris Ryan loves it, I think. Oh. Oh, okay. which makes me want to give it another chance. But. Sure. So he wouldn't release another movie until Top Gun Maverick, which of course was filmed quite a while before it was released right. and shelved because of COVID because Tom Cruise was like adamant there's going to be a theatrical release. And it was a massive hit, obviously. And it worked. Essentially the second lead in the movie. So that was a big showcase for him. And then he followed it up with The Offer, which was the TV show about the making of The Godfather. I saw some of that. He was interesting in that. Yeah, it wasn't bad. I saw some of it, but I never finished it. That was supposed to be an Army Hammer role, I think. Oh, right? okay. And he also did Spiderhead, with Chris Hemsworth, which was not bad. Yeah, that was fun. Now, tell me, I think, are you a Whiplash fan? Don't fucking talk to me about Whiplash. <laughs> it's like one of my five favorite movies. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I fucking love them. That's the only reason I give Teller a pass for like hanging out with Aaron Rodgers in Hawaii, and uh-huh. being, like, a general dickhead to everyone, is because he made Whiplash, because that movie fucking rules. Okay. You've seen Whiplash, right? I've seen Whiplash. I was okay with Whiplash. I liked what happened dramatically in the film. I thought it had some fun turns. I got hung up on the 
on the jazz drumming aspect of it. And the, like, like it wasn't good? It, like, it, yeah, the authenticity and how does an actor portray a drummer? He certainly made an effort and he, it's not like he was bad and it looked cheesy or goofy or anything, but I was probably, it's unfair to the movie to ask it to be a literal perfect representation of jazz school musicians and teachers. So Did you go to my, jazz school? No, I didn't go to jazz school. Actually, I played with a lot of guys in my band at one time were in jazz school at USC, School of Music, which oh, is okay. pretty prestigious school and so I have some like peripheral experience with and you did play drums so. I played the drums for a while so I have a feeling of what that should look like anyway we don't have to go and debate whiplash but because of my feelings about that movie I didn't come away with a very positive impression of Miles Teller until much later and then I liked him in Spiderhead I liked him in Maverick and so he's having a renaissance with me personally and probably with Hollywood as well I've seen people say that he's unlikable in whiplash as like a drawback for the movie uh-huh. but I think he's written to be like they're showing you the type of person that would get sucked in by the J.K. Simmons character and actually yeah. like buy into his complete insanity. It has to be this person who is so singularly obsessed with one thing and this being drumming to let the rest of their life devolve into such chaos. No, I agree. That's I would agree that it's intentional, that it's two characters that are fucked up in specific ways. And it's about how they bounce off each other, which is pretty yeah. interesting. I like the story shape of it. I was distracted by the details. That's fair. All right. So Teller does have some stuff coming up. He's oh, going to okay. be in The Gorge and The Fence and maybe another movie with the and then a one syllable <laughs> word after it. it. Actually, if those movies come out in the opposite order in which I just named them, we'll be going alphabetical. Oh, yeah. What would his next movie have to be? The House. The House would be good. Then you got the five house. letters. And then you go I. That's tough. The That's oh, a tough one. We should have studied. Yeah, for this. we should have. We fucked up. And then he's doing a voice for The Ark and The Aardvark, which I don't know what that is. But okay. Sure. Me either. Why not? Jonah Hill, in comparison, was riding high when this movie came out. He had done 22 Jump Street, which I love. Love yeah, the Jump fun. Street movies. Great time. Funny. He had a cameo in Hail Caesar, which I know you were just telling us about. Yeah. And then after this, he would star in the super weird Netflix show Maniac, which reunited him with his super bad co-star Emma Stone. Okay. I did not watch Maniac, but it looked interesting. I was not yeah. like, opposed to it, but I just never checked it out. I didn't either. It had a lot of interesting buzz. People were like, this fucking show's weird. It was like around a time when everyone was trying to do like a weird thing with a show because Soderbergh had his show around that time too, which was some kind of choose your own adventure type thing. Right. Okay. Everyone was like trying to come up with a gimmick, which Netflix did pretty recently with Kaleidoscope, which was like the high show you could watch in any order. Yeah. That was okay. But I don't feel like watching it out of order did anything for it. It's kind of stunt. Stunt stuff. Yeah. And then he would do his voice roles in the Lego movie too, and How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. The How to Train Your Dragon movies fucking rule. Just if anyone was wondering. And then he wrote and directed the pretty good coming of age skateboard dramedy mid nineties. Did you ever check that out? I don't think I did, but I heard good things about it. Yeah. It's a good time. He's not an untalented filmmaker. He also directed directed a documentary about his therapist called Stutz, yeah. which if I had to describe my feelings about that, I would just say I'm doing the jerk off motion right now, but you guys can't see me. <laughs> yeah, he's doing the it. Fuck do I need to watch a documentary about your therapist? I don't give a shit. It's a little more interesting, at least to me, than the worst version that you were picturing in your head. I watched the first half of it. A lot of the first half of the movie, at least, is about Jonah Hill and his struggles with how to get this movie made, how to frame it, some weird choices that he made, and he makes some revelations. So there's it brings more into it that makes it more than just, oh my God, my therapist is so cool. Listen to what he says. So there's more there, but it's still, it is a jerk off motion of a movie in terms of genre. All right. That makes me, makes me feel both better and also vindicated to some degree. Yeah. I'm not out of line. And then he was also in the, oh, since we're talking about Adam McKay, he had a big role in Don't Look Up. He was probably my favorite part of that movie. He was pretty, pretty funny in it. And uh, he was also in You People with Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Which I did not watch, but some people, I know my friend Matt watched it and really liked it. And I tend to respect his recommendations, but it's cringe comedy, I think, to like an unhealthy degree, which makes yes. me uncomfortable. I got cringed out of the movie in the middle. I was with it for a while. I watched a bunch of it and then it gets to one scene with his parents meeting his African-American girlfriend and they just get so cringy and they're good. It's Duchovny. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. It's like good, oh. outstanding comedy actors all around and the jokes are just so heavy. I was like, oh my God, I'm too uncomfortable. I'm going to stop watching this movie now. Yeah, I could see that cast really laying on the uncomfortable atmosphere pretty thick. So I'd probably I'll probably avoid it. But good for him. He also co-wrote the movie with Kenya Barris, so he's doing some behind the scenes stuff too. Yeah, interesting project. Let's talk about Anna Darmus a little bit because okay. she was kind of known before this, but from this little Keanu Reeves thriller called Knock Knock. Oh, okay. Um, which is like a surprisingly solid little movie. Like a small scope. Okay. But tells a really good self-contained story. Kind of creepy, fucked up, sexy. I recommend it if you're looking for Yeah, I might have more, to check that out. More Keanu in your 
life. But she wasn't like, she wasn't a star, certainly, when this movie came out. And apparently she didn't really speak English when this movie was being filmed. She sounded out the majority of her lines phonetically and just hoped for the best. And you can't really tell. She does a good, she hits the right notes. She's like hitting the right syllables and she's emphasizing the right parts of sentences. So it didn't strike me as anything out of the ordinary. Yeah. That story, the way it's told in some of the places you read those bits, it sounds sometimes like they're blowing it up a little too much to just make it more like a dramatic, funny story about her history. So you wonder how much she did understand. But so I didn't know that on the first watch. Then I read that. Then I watched it again. I'm like, wait a minute, does this actor know what they're saying? And it really does sound like she does. Yeah. But then again, she's a good actor. And like, she has the fun scenes where she calls him out. There's a big blow up scene where she calls him out on all his lies and it plays real. And it's like fun. You're like, oh yeah, this is good. You can actually make this character do something that as a viewer, you want that movie. You want this character to be called out because we're saying his lies are so stupid and meaningless and self-destructive. They're like, oh, finally she's calling him out. And then they, like we said, they kind of undo her because then he lies one more time and she's like, oh, that's the final lie. And now I'll take you back. No questions asked. And we kind of undoes her good work. And he never told another lie. (laughs) Of course, of course he kept lying to her. Like, yeah, I mean, we're talking about like, it's real. It's not real. She didn't exist. (laughs) She still does not exist. Yeah. So we feel for her. That's what we do. That's a testament to her acting. But after like she, she really exploded after this movie. She was in Blade Runner 2049, not a big part, but a pivotal part. And she got rave reviews for it. She was great. And that's yeah, she was really cool. That's when I first took notice of her. I was like, who's that? And then she did some other roles. She had a, essentially a co-lead in Knives Out with Daniel Craig, which was mm-hmm. huge for her. And she was very charming in that. And then she appeared in No Time to Die with Craig again. Yeah. One sequence really, but she stole the show when she was on screen there. Yeah. It was again, a lot of fun. And then she did Deep Water, which I watched the Ben Affleck erotic thriller, the Adrian oh, Lyon one. Yes. I didn't, I never got around to that. It's a good time. It's fun. I recommend it even though it's very silly in a lot of ways, but it's worth the hour and a half or whatever it takes. She did The Gray Man, which I cannot recommend wholeheartedly, even though I like a lot of the actors in that movie. I think Gosling's pretty fun in it. I love Evans being unhinged and crazy. Yes. But DeArmas is kind of, she's playing the straight man to some degree, which I don't think is the best use of her abilities because she's kooky. She can be like real silly and fun and the movie just sidelines her to some degree. Yeah, I watched, I think this is my story on a lot of things that come up on this (laughs) podcast. I watched two thirds of The Gray Man and then I was like, something turned me off about it. It had all the components of a splashy action spy thriller, but something about it turned me off. Despite the fact that I liked all those things that you liked about it. The actors in their performances. It felt like a movie made by AI. Yeah. <laughs> you feed all these other better movies into an AI and are like, write me a script. And uh, this is what came out. So it's, it's missing something yeah. like human at the it core. Was. And uh, that was my problem with it. But then she all was well because she was going to star in her magnum opus, the Andrew Dominic Marilyn Monroe drama, Blonde, which was finally released in 2022 and was divisive to say the least. Yeah. I think, did she get an Oscar nod for that though? I think she did. She I I think she might have. Here's the end part of this. I did maybe 25 minutes of Blonde. And it's weird as fuck. It's really weird. Yeah. Andrew Dominic was two for two, like in, in the absolute best way you could be up until that point with me. He made The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Okay. And he made Killing Them Softly. And I was a huge fan of both those movies. Less so with Blonde. Yeah. I didn't stick around long enough to figure out the big picture of that movie because obviously it had more than it. It's not a straight up, straight ahead biopic. It's trying to do more than that. Aesthetic at least. And like, I didn't stick around long enough to decide if I understood or liked what he was trying to do. Cause I was just, it was just a little too off-putting. I don't think the movie ever really figured out what it was trying to do on oh, a grander okay. scale. Cause I agree. It certainly had aspirations, but I don't know that it ever quite ironed out what they were. And I'm sure Andrew Dominic would disagree, but <laughs> if enough people say it, then you didn't get your point across well enough. Yep. Unfortunately. So, unfortunately. But I think she's going to be okay. I don't think she got an Oscar nod for it, which is crazy. Cause I've never seen seen a movie that people hated this much get a Best Actress nominee. And most yeah. people are like, oh, this movie's Oscar bait. Blonde was not Oscar at all. It is the opposite of Oscar bait. It is repulsive. Like it is trying to make you upset and angry. And that doesn't feel like the kind of movies or performances that the Academy typically awards. But she does have two movies coming up soon. Ghosted, which I have no idea what that's about. Could be a spooky story or it could be about like online dating. Yeah, uh, I wonder which. Say. And Ballerina, which is a John Wick movie, essentially. It's oh. taking place in that universe and he's rumored to make an appearance in it. She's playing, I assume, an assassin nicknamed the Ballerina. Because that would just make a lot of sense. It would. And, uh, it would be intriguing. I'm all in on the Wick- Wikiverse. Yeah. There's a tweet from Pat Tobin, who's one of my favorite Twitter accounts. It's like John Wick walks into a bodega, puts a Red Bull on the counter. 
And the clerk is like, that will be one giant gold ornate coin. I've always loved that tweet. Everyone just pays for everything in that world with these fucking huge gold coins. Well, now Anna will get to drop some coin. So that's what I got. Do you have any closing thoughts on War Dogs? I have a little thought. We kind of talked about it. My, my overall thought about the movie is like, you can enjoy it if you're okay with what it is, which is like a popcorn movie version of a long form magazine story, which is what it literally is. It's like, it's movie adapted from a long magazine piece about, hey, this crazy real thing happened in the real world. And insofar as it like gives you some of that and illustrates, can you believe this crazy shit goes on? It's fun. And that's the part of it that I think probably hooked both of us in. It just illustrates that situation in a kind of a fun way. But unlike Adam McKay, who we talked about, tread some similar ground, Todd Phillips didn't have that much to say about it. So he right. shows it to you and he goes, does this mean something? And then he, he sprinkles some Hollywood stuff in there. He's like, well, people are going to need this. Got to have a pretty actress and we got to have a scary chase scene. But he doesn't end up confronting you with it all that much or even leading you into wanting to confront it. And so then I found this quote, which I like to do now, bring other people's quotes in. Anne Hornaday, who's a film critic for the Washington Post, points out that at one point in the movie, Ephraim tells his employees, for the record, A-E-Y doesn't stand for anything because they're arguing about what do the letters mean. And she's like, the same thing could be said for war dogs. Doesn't stand for anything. Ooh, I was like, <laughs> juicy. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it le- leaves you hanging because it sets you up for something that you think is going to be morally weighty and it's just not at all. Yeah. And I think you'll be delighted to know that the author of the original magazine article, Guy Lawson, kind of agrees with you. Oh. He gave a quote to the LA Times and said, they got a lot of it in, but you watch the end and you think it's about these guys. It's not. It's about the system. So he's basically saying there that Phillips was just like focused on the wrong thing. He, he told, yeah. wanted to tell a buddy crime story when really it might have been more apropos to focus in on like, how do these sort of things happen? Like, how are these systems set up and so easy to manipulate and exploit? It's interesting that you say that because there is one appearance of characters who represent the system when they take that meeting with those Pentagon guys, but that's like a wacky Coen Brothers style scene with some weird characters who look almost like twins for no reason. And they, they do look like twins. <laughs> that's, Thank I you for saying that. I think that's the joke of the scene, but it's just some absurdity like, hey, the Pentagon is an absurd place with weird guys who tell you funny stuff they're not supposed to tell you about the contracting process. But that certainly doesn't add anything to the meaning of how fucked up the world is. It just uses it as a little comedy prop for a scene. That was War Dogs. We will be back next week with an exciting one. We're doing the 2012 version of Red Dawn. Oh, Uh, shit. They made a 2012 version of Red Dawn? I know. I was surprised too. But they did. And it has a fucking crazy story (laughs) behind it. So we're going to get all into it. Ian, Ian you just read a book about the China and Hollywood connection. So you're going to have a lot of interesting insight to this and a lot of fun stories. I'll try to mine that for some specific stories about this movie because it's interesting. And I don't know, we're getting topical with the potty or like spy balloons defense contracting world war three any of these things could jump up and bite us at any time it's real stuff folks yeah thank you guys so much for listening please remember to rate review subscribe to the pod follow us on twitter at blast pod email us blast at gmail.com recommendations feedback suggestions praise please wish lists love that and uh we'll see you next time in the blast zone see you next time in the blast zone <laughs> <laughs>